Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. If you can take a moment to go to patreon.com indoctrination to help support the show, to keep it on the air, it would be a wonderful, wonderful, good deed. <laughs> Please think of it as one because I pay for it out of pocket. And so this really is absolutely necessary to keep it on the air for you and for the people you love and care about and for future guests who would like to be able to tell their stories. So I'd like the show to still be in existence for them and for you. So again, patreon.com slash indoctrination. We're going to have somebody on the show who's going to talk about something that we haven't yet covered. And I want to be very clear about the fact that just as with a lot of other things, we are not saying something is absolutely bad or absolutely good. This is a way of kind of looking at it investigating, dissecting, figuring out a subject that raises temperatures. It's something that people get emotional about. So this is not at all meant to ruffle feathers, but just as a way to explore this together. Brooke Canuck is a licensed marriage and family therapist and registered art therapist based in Los Angeles, who has over 10 years of clinical experience She currently sees clients at her private practice, where she uses cognitive, relational, and somatic techniques to help individuals with developmental trauma or dysfunctional families, and to help them cultivate healthy boundaries and relationships. Brooke was introduced to the 12-step program of AA in her early 20s, and she went on to be a very active member for 14 years before she started to question aspects of the organization. Since leaving AA in early 2018, Brooke has expanded her practice to include supporting clients that are transitioning away from controlling systems and helping them learn to trust themselves again. Here's Brooke now. Welcome today to the show, Brooke Knock. I really am so happy to have you. You are a colleague and someone who is new to me, and I'm so happy to meet you because I'm so happy to know about the work that you're doing and the kind of clients that you're able to see and the kind of client experiences that you're able to address that many other therapists I think don't know how to address or don't see as an issue. And that just makes people, I think, feel like they don't have a resource out there who's going to take their story seriously. And it's such a shame. It's a pleasure to have you on to talk about your own experiences and also how your experiences and your training then inform the kind of work that you do and the issues that you're going to be sensitive to with your clients. So you can take it away and introduce yourself. So my name is Brooke Canock. I am a marriage family therapist. I'm working in private practice. Uh, I'm originally trained as an art therapist and have also been trained in some somatic uh, trauma-informed modalities, such as a trauma resiliency model. So I do work um, primarily with women, 
usually young professionals who are working in a creative field. I work a lot with trauma survivors. And so a lot of those issues end up being communicating boundaries, learning to trust themselves. And I also have a couple of clients who were previously in uh, 12-step organizations, um, very involved, who have since left, and also a couple of clients who were uh, raised in religious cults and have since left. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, the, I, I urge anyone who's listening who is studying to become a therapist or know someone who's becoming a therapist or is a therapist to, to um, learn how to work with these populations because there's so many people, and I'm sure, Brooke, you've, you know, you've dealt with this too, that people come to you and they say, I didn't, you know, I didn't know where to turn or I went to someone else and they didn't address it or they, you know, mm-hmm. ignored it and talked about other things or, or some people also get into their cults through their therapist. I mean, I know a lot of people have had these bad experiences where they've been sent to different places uh, as adjuncts to treatment and those places were not vetted well enough. Yeah. Yeah. So I know some people get into this kind of work because they're interested in the subject and others because they've had some personal experiences that have kind of sensitized them to how not only what happens to you, but viscerally, you can understand what it feels like and that can help guide you in your treatment. So take a few moments if you can, and just let us know about some of your own experiences that have led you into feeling like you want to do this work and respond to what people need after having been through those experiences. Okay. Yeah. So part of what has actually drawn me into doing this kind of work and and interest in working with this population is my own personal experience. When I was in my early 20s, I was going through a lot. Uh, My dad was dying from cancer. I had just graduated from college. a significant relationship had just ended. And I think, you know, in general, I was completely overwhelmed at the time. I started abusing alcohol. You know, I definitely had a problem, you know, from there, because what do you do when you have a problem with alcohol is like, I I had a dear friend who uh, knew somebody who'd been to rehab. And so I contacted them and I, I just didn't really know what else to do. So I went to a rehab and in the rehab, it was a, a residential program and a program where they held 12-step meetings almost every night. The 12 steps were the foundation of the program. And so I, you know, got sober, as they say, and I, and I started going to the meetings and I started making friends and um, was in 12-step for a little over 14 years through my 20s and into my mid-30s which I have since uh, left in the last couple of years and sort of dealing with the aftermath of, you know, sort of reflecting about what worked for me, what didn't, you know, because I'm, I, I am one of these people that it worked for. Right. And I, you know, if, if you would have asked me, you know, even five years ago, if I was going to come, you know, if, if I was going to speak out, um, against it in any way or not be in it, I, I would have thought that absolutely that that wouldn't be true. I was, I think, fully indoctrinated for the most part into it. And 
you know, it, when I look back, I can definitely see how it worked. Certainly like going somewhere and having something to do and having, um, you know, gaining an immediate circle of friends uh, felt really good. Right. Yeah. Uh, sort of like a sense of belonging, a sense of purpose was certainly better compared to what was happening, you know, before uh, I got into rehab. And so uh, I, I jumped in you know, feet first <laughs> and really uh, got into the whole thing. And, and that's how my life was for many years. And it was a good thing. I saw it as a good thing. And it felt like a good thing for the most part. It was really not until, you know, I sort of slowly faded away from the program. You know, it wasn't until I had an experience with a friend with some THC, right? And, and so in AA, like you can't, you can't take any mind altering substances, right? Like that ruins your sobriety. Your if you're counting days, your streak, your your clean time. Right. You know, I think what happened for me is that it all kind of came crashing down when I realized, like, oh, if if I if I wanted to return to to AA or continue being in twelve step, that I would have to start over and. I think that I just, it didn't, it wasn't making, you know, it wasn't making sense to me anymore to like start over for that reason. And I think I really started questioning some of the beliefs that I had acquired in the program over the years. Mm. I think what really actually like sent me out of 12 step is after breaking my sober time in what felt like a fairly insignificant way, you know, like if I would have just been able to sort of continue. Yeah. Is that I was suddenly afraid that I was going to die or that I was going to go crazy. And and that's when I got really angry. Mm. I got I got really angry at 12 step because I felt like part of my brain knew better and knew that I was in charge of my choices and that something like that would not automatically lead to absolute ruin. And then I had the part of my mind that I think is really, you know, that's what we talk about the programming, right? That said, you are going to regret this. This will not end well. The only way for you to be a functional adult is to be in 12 step. So, so I think when I, it's so funny because like when you're in it, I feel like it all makes sense and it all feels really like it, it all feels like it makes sense. And as long as you're going along with what it is, you're okay. Mm -hmm. But I think, and maybe this is also true for other, you know, sort of systems of control. So as soon as I stepped outside of it though, I felt completely damned you know, and the, the amount of shame and fear that came from, from even leaving, I think really opened my eyes to sort of how it functioned in my life and what it was. Cause I, you know, cause I, I think in program, I remember people like maybe kind of joking about it being a cult, maybe joking about the brainwashing and people saying like, well, my name, my, uh, my brain needed to be washed. Wow. And kind of 
you know, joking that it's a cult, but saying like, well, but it's not really a cult. And I know, I think that there's like a spectrum and there's certainly like far worse organizations to get involved with, right? But <laughs> I always thought like, oh, but you can leave any time except for the fact that no, when you leave, when you leave, you're so afraid that you are going to die and that you are going to regret it or you are going to go crazy or that you are going that your that your whole life will become ruined that to me I started to recognize that as like there actually isn't freedom to leave wow okay so just to jump in here for a moment i think that there is also and this is something i'd, I'd like you to touch upon that there is fear about talking about this that there are a lot of people who have said to me that they've wanted to talk about it, but they're afraid. Sometimes they're afraid that they're going to be doing themselves in in some way. Sometimes they're afraid that they're going to be betraying their friends and community. And other times there's going to be consequence of people fighting what they say and being aggressive about it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's all along this spectrum. And, and so what you're what you're not saying, and I want everyone to be clear about this, what you're not saying is all 12-step programs are cults. Yeah. What you are, right? What you're saying is it worked for me. Yeah. And there was still this other part or these other parts that are problematic. And maybe it's that it worked, but the control was overdone and overreaching and lasted beyond where it needed to or made you feel like you couldn't trust yourself in the world even though you're doing just fine yeah well exactly and I think that that is really what has ended up being like part of my issues with it right I think that a lot of people who already have difficulty trusting themselves because there are a lot of trauma survivors in 12 step a lot of people have difficulty with boundaries, have difficulty trusting themselves. And then you go into a program where you're basically told that you shouldn't trust yourself, that you can never, that you will never be able to trust yourself, right? And then other sorts of rules that are in there, like never say no to an AA request, right? And so people that having difficulty with boundaries, you know, and the people that, that don't need the kind of ego deflation that it was originally intended for with, you know, the founders, right. I think it actually ends up being incredibly harmful, you know, and as far as my experience, having difficulty, you know, speaking out about it, it's, you know, it's really not about, it's not about retribution, right? Or it's, it's not for fear that like, somebody would come after me, but it, it is, you know, I have my own internalized sense of shame, still, and this idea of like, maybe this is a huge mistake, right? Maybe, you know, maybe you can't survive without the program. Maybe your life will never be as good without the program, right? And that I, that I would come to like eat my words, sort of speaking out about it. Because I mean, I think that something very interesting happens because I feel like I have my perspective now but I still feel very in touch with how my thought process worked while I was in it. And really, so there's almost like this internalized version of me in 12 step talking back to all my new thinking, 
right? Right. And that, that I'm sort of constantly battling. That's where I think like the deprogramming is like so important to recognize that and, and to talk to other people who have been through this same thing. Because if, if you leave and you're alone, it's incredibly frightening. Yes. I think having this fear over your head, you know, that you're going to wind up, you're going to wind up dead and in a gutter and et cetera, et cetera. I think needing to call yourself something, you know, that you have to call yourself an alcoholic. I think that is also for some people problematic because it's not that the issue was the alcohol. It was that they were self-medicating and they were going through a difficult time or trauma or depression. And so they're not alcoholics, right? They're going through something. Uh, and this was just their, their sort of drug of choice at the time. Yeah. And so I just, I think that there, there are some positives with it. And a lot of people have been helped. A lot of people swear by it and it's what's kept them on track and they have to be accountable, et cetera, et cetera. But for other people, it's been really problematic. Yeah. For some people, it's very helpful. Let me just say this. I I think that the reason, (laughs) you know, I've talked about this with another therapist friend who's actually also left 12 step. And, you know, we, we had kind of discussed like, what was actually working about it? And I think the thing is like, what actually works about it is not what AA thinks is working about it. So I actually feel like there are really sort of like common sense based in science, based in psychology reasons that it works, right? Because if you're with a huge group of people that you feel like you are all doing the same thing, you all have the same goals, you know, it's, it's very structured. You know, the reason that I, kept going to meetings is because that's where my friends were that became my social life if I had never connected with anybody I don't know how long I would have been able to really hang in there right I mean I might have left if it really felt like a chore rather than like this is where I go see my people I think that that is misguided and I and I think that the it is so absolute black and white right that that is really also what one of my issues is, is that if you're struggling, nobody in the program will say, maybe this isn't working for you. Maybe you need to try a different approach. That's never, you know, it's always the failing of the individual, right? Which is like very similar to like the MLM, like what happens in MLM organizations, right? Where it's like, you didn't try hard enough. You didn't go to enough meetings. You're not, you know, being of service enough. You're not doing, so like you'll find people who are like really struggling with PTSD, trauma, other kinds of mood disorder, like the anxiety, depression. And it's kind of like the program is supposed to fix all of that. It's not everywhere in AA. I know that there are some like more culty like groups in AA that are actually against psychiatric medication. I mean, I feel like that's incredibly dangerous. The group I was in was not, and I think was fairly open to therapy, but it's still, you know, program comes first. It's supposed to come before everything. And I'm curious to, I want to go back to that for a second. I want to be able to talk about the fear of talking about it because I think that that's really important. And so for you to be able to share what your reticence would be. Well, I mean, my fears is mostly coming from the part, I think, of my head that is probably still wonders like, are they right? Is that the truth? You know, it it was my truth for so long that like once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. If you're not working a program, 
then you are um, you are a dry drunk and you are, you know, so even sober, even so, or abstinent, that if you're not working a 12-step program that you are a dry drunk, right? And that you are still um, sick, still always, always sick. And so I think it, it comes from like the part of me that feels like, maybe I'm sick, maybe I am sick, maybe I always will be sick, right? Or, or the fear that like something is going to come, like it's going to bite me in the ass in some way. You know, I mean, I think that that's originally one of the reasons that people are supposed to be anonymous is like, you know, in case you make the program look bad or you don't want to make yourself, <laughs> you don't want to make yourself a representative one. And so, you know, I think in this case, I'm thinking like, you know, what if I regret this? Because it is all downhill from now. Oh, you know what I mean? Like just a little bit of the fear that is still, I think, really deep and really hard to shake. Yes. And it is hard. I mean, anything that you're taught that is laced with fear, those are the hardest things to shake because you get lost in the what ifs. And it's really important to have a sense about why it was important for them to think have you think this way or for you to believe these things? And I think there could have been from the start, the sense that that's the only way to really keep people on track. If the understanding at the time was that if you drink too much, you're an alcoholic, which we now know is not necessarily the case, but in keeping with that model, then yes. How do you keep people from drinking again? You make them afraid. You make them feel that they can't trust themselves. You make them dependent on a program that can help them. And I think again, the intention was a good one, but the, the fact though, that it's like the same pill for everyone that, you know, the only thing that's going to work for you is going back to the program and that's what you need. It's just not the case because you've already proven that you don't need it anymore. At the time it served a purpose and you don't need it anymore. And so you've graduated. I think it's very healthy. And I think that that should have been built in from the start that it's healthy to graduate from something because then you have this rebuilding of self-confidence. Yeah. And in a group that doesn't allow you to do that, then you never get to see what you're capable of on your own. Exactly. And I, I think that that's so true. And I, I do think it was helpful, probably especially at the beginning when I really did need like a complete reset of all my patterns, all my habits, the way that I was thinking about things addressing issues that I was avoiding. But yeah, I would say like more than a couple of years in, I think it stopped being helpful (laughs) in that same way, you know, because I was, I was doing pretty good. It was probably about five years into it when I went back to graduate school. I mean, I think that's when I started recognizing that like it wasn't meeting all my needs, (laughs) right? And that I couldn't fix everything with it. And so I think I did my own sort of gradual graduation, but the fact that that's not normalized or supported in it at all, you know, I mean, the, it's, the rooms are basically full of horror stories of what happens if you go out because those are the people that come back. I think the people that leave and are fine, they don't come back to tell you that they're fine. So, so you also never get any of those stories. Right. And, and those stories were hugely important for me to find once I left because I felt like I wasn't going to be okay. Right. I had to contact some people that I knew had left that as far as I knew, weren't dying in the streets, you know, like 
and just see what other people's experiences are. And, you know, the internet is a also a wonderful way to connect with people who might not be talking about this stuff openly. Right. And, and just as you were saying, you know, there's reticence to talk about it. So you're not going to hear those stories as often. That's an interesting perspective. Yeah. The people who come back to the meetings, it's in this self-selected group. Exactly. Right. There's like a bias already. Like that. And yeah. And that's what's sort of like confirming your reality. It's like all the horror stories of what happens when you leave. So it is confirmed, but it's, there, there's not like a complete picture there. Right. So the same way that there's not a complete picture with like a spectrum of uh, any sort of substance misuse. Right. I mean, I, I think that, you know, it was almost like a point of pride that people didn't have to like reach a bottom, like the same bottom that they used to have to. Right. In order to get sober. But then I think what actually ends up happening is a lot of people that probably don't need that much. They don't need to turn their complete life over to that program for the rest of their life to overcome that issue, that it just sort of starts collecting all those people and then turning them into like a black and white alcoholic alcoholic or normie sort of belief system, right? Instead of, you know, the huge spectrum that I think actually exists. And also all the reasoning, like I remember scoffing at people who claim that they were self-medicating. And now as a mental, as somebody who works in mental health, like I just cringe at that, right? Cause I really think that it, it is so true, but there's not, there's not a lot of room for that in 12 step, the self-medicating. Cause that, that sort of negates this idea that like you're alcoholic or you're not, and that it has nothing to do with your life situation or circumstances. Exactly. So I do think that that 12 step is, is helpful for people who fit within the rubric uh, of the reason why it was developed. And, but a lot of people there um, don't fit into it and then blame themselves for it not working. And that's really a shame. And I think there should be a disclaimer, like this, this might not actually be addressing what your issues are. So if it's not working, it could be that then you need to look at other resources, but that doesn't happen as far as I know. Well, and I, and I think that that that's what ends up being like the most harmful is like when you create that kind of shame in an individual, that is absolutely the last thing that you should be doing for somebody who's dealing with that kind of issue or trying to get help because it's so counterproductive. Yes. It's so counterproductive because the shame sort of perpetuates that cycle. Exactly right. That is sort of like one of my biggest problems with it is that there isn't enough education and there's not enough awareness inside the group that it might not be like, what are resources outside the group? Yeah. And I think also because AA is so easy to remember in in people's minds and it's on every resource list in every hospital, every everything, it becomes the go-to, the kind of the automatic default. And I think that that's, there need to be other choices. And there are also other sobriety programs that don't use the 12-step model that are successful. Right. And you just don't hear about them. No, yeah. And they're not as big and maybe they're not as glamorous and they're not, I mean, a, especially in Los Angeles, AA is a big, you know, it's like their birthday cakes and singing and celebrities and like really fantastic storytellers <laughs> who are sharing their story. You know, it's not, um, you know, I went to a couple meetings 
in other parts of the country and it's a, it's a little bit different, you know? Yeah, LA adds its pizzazz to things that it probably even shouldn't. <laughs> and it's really easy to forget about, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, at its core, it's sort of, it's very Christian based, <laughs> you know, it's really based on Christian ideals. And yeah. I think that's easy to, to forget in, in uh, Los Angeles that, you know, that it's kind of feels a little bit like church in other parts of the country. And yeah. Well, I think it's held at a lot of churches, actually. I see a lot of... A lot well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anywhere where you can rent a room for 10 bucks a week. Yeah. <laughs> so I have something else that, you know, I I want to bring up about AA where, and, and not just about AA, but about other organizations, you know, residential treatments and other places, places where there isn't a governing body, where there isn't a safeguard where there isn't someone to go to if you're being mistreated or if your sponsor is being unhealthy with you or crossing boundaries with you. And that's the issue that I have with it too, that I think there really need to be many more safeguards and the people in there, in, in there with good intentions, but some are not, and that's going to be true of anywhere. Um, but in other places, like if that were happening with a professor at your school, you would go to the dean and you'd have somebody to talk to who would be a, a watchful eye, but that doesn't seem to be built into this. No, I mean, it's certainly not built in. You know, I, I think one of the problems with that is that people are so vulnerable that like, if this person who is mistreating you or taking advantage of you is your sponsor, there's very little defense against it. You know, I, I think that, you know, if people don't know better. And I think, you know, of course, people who have traumatic histories, who have abusive histories, um, are exactly the kind of people that end up in meetings and then are exactly the kind of people who would have difficulty discerning, you know, if somebody's treatment is abusive or not. You know, I, I think it's very confusing. And I, you know, I think that I was very fortunate, like, you know, and, and yet here I am speaking out sort of against it, even with somebody who had, I think, what was probably a relatively positive experience. I was around really relatively safe people. I think some of that is just me because I was protected enough that I, you know, didn't experience anything too terrible inside the groups. But I know lots of people who have because of just like it brings all it brings like abusers and trauma. It, it brings all those people together and there is no governing body. And so people are kind of fending for themselves. And I think that becomes problematic. And also, you know, the, the idea of this, you know, the fourth step, which is like the moral inventory where people are sharing really personal traumatic things and they're sharing them with people who are not licensed professionals or sharing them with people who don't know how to treat trauma. And I, I think that that ends up being like really harmful. Yes, I agree with you. And I think, you know, if anyone is listening who is in 12-step and, and it's working for you, mm -hmm. uh, this is not for you to say you have to go. It's to kind of help you know what to watch out for. Yeah. And I think also to know that you don't have to share everything, as you're saying. And I think it's really great to remember that, mm -hmm. that even though there is the expectation and I think also a pushing towards real, real kind of unzipping yourself, you know, and really exposing the deepest and the darkest. Yeah. And that's a way to 
really connect with people and you know, if other people are doing it, you don't want to seem like you're withholding because that wouldn't seem right. And there's a lot of social pressure, I think, around that. Well, and there's so much pressure, but the, there's also, you know, the half measures avail us nothing and that the, the, and that the moral inventory is fearless and thorough, right? So there is no like halfway inventory. It's like, it's, it's a complete exposure. You know, I think that there's a lot of healing that can happen if you're sharing things with people who are safe, who have had similar experiences. You know, I think that that was my experience was okay, but I just think that um, there are a lot of people who are not ready to do that and a lot of people that aren't safe to do that with and and that that isn't really spoken about enough. The groups are kind of in charge of themselves. So if somebody is, you know, I remember people where they'd be like, oh, this guy's a creep. And everybody could like kind of know it and just, you know, maybe stay away from them and try to watch out for like new people. But, um, you know, but yeah, you can't, there's not really much you could do. You could maybe run somebody out of the meeting (laughs) by making them feel unwelcome, you know, but the groups are kind of protecting themselves. And so I, you know, that's who I feel bad for is people who I think are really vulnerable that get mixed up in, in groups that are being run by people who tend to victimize or like to control other people. Okay. So then, then it's an important message. I think if people do share and they feel like it's part of their work and their commitment to it, that they share, that they are speaking. And it's a great reminder on your part that they're speaking to people who are not necessarily mental health professionals and some of whom just might not be healthy are going to have a response that isn't necessarily accurate and that you don't have to then take it in as codified fact. And it, I think it's good to kind of hold it out as that person's opinion. Yeah. Then talk to someone else about it who is schooled (laughs) and then get their opinion before you absorb it as the truth. Right. It's hard to do it in the moment, but it's really important to just kind of keep it suspended out there, that thought, take it to someone else who can kind of guide you through that and respond in a way that's more informed. I'm wondering, just as we shift gears a bit, mm-hmm. you know, when you're talking about the programming and it's in your head and it's like having, it's like someone freed you, but they left a shackle attached and you didn't realize that it was still there. You know, like you were like, what's that on my wrist? I could just, you know, and, um, oh, and I can't get it off. And, you know, can I, can I try different things to get it off? And why did they put it there kind of without my consent? And it doesn't feel good. And I can imagine it would piss you off and you don't need it. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. And so then, then as you move into doing therapy work, what are you noticing with some of your clients where they're having similar experiences and how does it inform the kind of work that you do with them? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, of course, in my work, I talk a lot about, you know, sort of different parts of ourselves and, and old beliefs and beliefs that might not be useful anymore. And I think that, you know, I am really able to sort of like, I think for that reason, catch when people are operating on like, really, you know, like, we can say like, oh, is this like sort of leftover from your experience, you know, either with this group or with this church and um, 
is is there a different way to view view this thing? And then so much of it also just comes through like building up trust in yourself, you know, and 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 building trust that you can um, that you can make good decisions, that you can take care of yourself, that you can work, you know, sort of teach other people how to treat you and what you need, you know. And I think really just from my personal experience, I'm able to like normalize like the confusion that I think happens when you're almost, you know, cause it is almost like a, a, a switch flipping, right? Where it's, where you remember how you thought and what you felt at the time and how it made so much sense. And then it's almost like it gets completely flipped around and it's so disorienting. So it's, it's almost even a little bit like, um, I think when people experience after betrayal, right? Like even like a, a personal betrayal, like or in a infidelity in a romantic relationship where it's like you think reality is one way and then you have a complete reversal or just sort of change of what reality actually is. And it's so um, confusing, I think, at the beginning. And to like hold both of those things at the same time. And I think that, you know, I certainly have a ton of empathy for people who are experiencing that, you know, a really awareness of the shame that lingers like for so long after, like, like after 12 step and also after, you know, some of these like religious cults, right. Or, you know, and I think even probably the same with like any of the the new agey cults, right? Where there is this sense of like, I'm not doing enough. Mm. I'm not doing enough. I'm or I'm not doing it the right way. And I think that that is really um, part of my mission to tell people that like, you don't have to be, you know, continually, you don't always have to do like the right perfect thing. And you don't always have to know the answer. And you, you know, it's okay if life gets a little messy sometimes and it's okay if you're figuring it out. Yes. And I think also when you're talking about the shame, there's so many people who carry that burden with them. Um, people who have been raped, they carry that burden, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who have never right. who would never dream of doing anything to anyone else but had something happen to them. Yeah. And there are some cultures that reinforce that you know, that it brings shame on the family and whatever else. And I think, oh, it's really, right. how do you help people who have come to you and are, are carrying around this sense that they're not enough or there's something inherently wrong with them? Wow. I, you know, I think that that is such a, that is a process, process that I think actually takes some time. Right. And I, and I think it really is about, you know, working with somebody who who understands that and somebody who isn't judgmental and who isn't shaming. Right. And then really, you know, all the change that occurs outside of, you know, the, the in between the sessions, right. Where people have lived experiences of like, I need to make a decision about this thing and I don't know what to do. And really, you know, helping people learn how to be okay with, who, you know, some of it, I think, comes off pretty quick, right? If we really ask, like, where did you get this messaging from? Is this messaging actually true? Is this valuable, right? So, 
It might come from the organizations we're talking about, or it might come from our families, right? But to really ask, like, is this true? Like, am I automatically believing this true? Or is this something that I've actually experienced is true? Or can I question it a little bit? And what is it like if I maybe take a small step in trusting myself about something or speak up about something? Maybe I set a boundary. Maybe I ask uh, for a need to be met, you know? And that, and that when some working with a therapist and then living their life in that way, that that is really like, where that muscle starts to build and you start to you know think that you can really trust yourself until you do a couple things where you actually experience you know trust <laughs> trusting yourself and moving forward with it right so that you have that a lived experience of it you know I think that going back to this idea of when people implant in you this idea that something bad is going to happen to you if you stop going you know on some level we can understand it and we can understand why that's being enforced for people who really do need that as an anchor. And once they're away from it, they really don't quite know or have the capacity or have the support uh, to be able to keep themselves in a good space and in a healthy way. And then for other people, they're just left having the phrases in their head that have been repeated over and over. And that that is really hard to, to get rid of. And even for people who are aware, mental health professionals, people who deal with this, you can still click into the phrases that are, are kind of under your skin. And it's almost like you have to talk to them and tell them, have your voice be louder in some way. What do you do with that? And what are some of the phrases also, if you can let us know? You know, I generally don't use the word sobriety. Like I, I will use the word abstinence. Um, cause I think you're right. Like the language, changing the language is hugely important, right? Because there's such a coded language in 12 step. And I think I'll, I will catch myself because sometimes I will want to say them and I will find a, another way. What's an example, just so you can give the listeners examples of some of the coded language, um, like contempt prior to investigation, um, is one, right. Which, right not necessarily a bad thing, but I feel like it's also, you know, it's used to kind of shut people up who might have a criticism of something. And uh, <laughs> some other, like, sick is your secrets. I mean, and these are ones that are kind of, you know, that's like some of the languaging, but, um, you know, talking about the gratitude, now I will frequently say appreciate rather than grateful. Um, because even, even a simple word like that, and, and I have no problem with the concept, but I think just the way that it was used in 12 step to sort of aid in this like spiritual bypassing where we don't actually get to express like any sort of discontent feelings, you know, and like anger. Oh, well, and, and so this is for me also really important, right? Is that one of the things that I started to get really irritated with is like, no matter what my problem was, I felt like the responses would be sort of slogans or, you know, like everybody's response, like, and when I realized like, oh, okay, people are responding to me with a slogan, like it doesn't feel personal, but it, if you would complain about it not feeling personal enough, I mean, there's almost the shame about being unique, quote unquote, because if you're 
unique, it means that you're not following the program and that, and that you want it or doing it your way. Right. Right. All those things are basically the same as leaving. Right. It's like, those are the stubborn ones, right. The ones who will not, who cannot or will not do what they're supposed to be doing either because they're morally deficient in some way or just plain arrogant or stubborn right and so there's like really you don't want to be an individual thinker so interesting i just wanted to respond to two of those things and then we'll, we'll wrap it up that that you're sick as your secrets very interesting because that to me feels like this encouragement to share that if you don't tell your quote unquote secrets, you'll be sick or, you know, remain sick. And back to your point that you might be sharing them, but with whom you, you always want to evaluate your audience before you say something. And so if you, if you evaluate who's listening and you can think, you know, okay, now I have a little bit of information because I've heard the way they've responded to other people and either it's been really helpful or it's been really dismissive or re, kind of blaming and, or abusive, then that's not your audience to share your secrets with and get, you know, collect that data around you and then be a good steward to yourself, I think, and decide who deserves your secrets, your information. Are they people who are going to treat them well and kindly and treat you kindly? And I think that's really important too make that judgment call about, even though it is hard. But yes, I think being responded to with slogans, it's very hard. It drives me actually crazy. And I haven't dealt with (laughs) slogans, but I mean, if you tell someone your story and you're opening up to them and they respond with, well, two in the hand is worth three in the book, whatever these are, right? Okay. (laughs) Right. And it's something like, I think that's from an Aesop's fable and I don't know. And were you listening? You know? And so I think it's really hard because then it's like this here, here's this formulaic thing I'm going to offer you. I'm going to think I'm being helpful and I'm going to feel kind of benevolent and I'm, I'm offering you this gift. And you're thinking I could have read that on a Hallmark card and that's not <laughs> about me. <laughs> and were you listening? Maybe not. But I, so I think there is that kind of distance that step away And where do you get to really be, you know, cared for and listened to on a personal level? And I, I, yeah, I think that can be built into the system of AA, into the pieces that work. That would be great. Well, yeah, if it can't be, yeah. I don't know if it can be built into it. I mean, I, I certainly had close friends who I felt like were genuinely listening to me because there definitely are people in the program who I think are not quite as, let's say, fundamentalist as like, some of the groups and okay. I you know okay. yeah I feel like those people are probably a little better to be around okay you know yeah. I think some of the groups take care of each other inside I mean I know certainly even just as like women sometimes I would you know hear women shared mixed meetings about sexual trauma and where you know you would really want to go up after and talk to them and say you know that this is something that should probably be sh- shared in private or in a women's meeting or like a smaller meeting that's really like a safe place because it's so encouraged and I mean I remember what it was like to have a very emotional share and and sort of like the boost that you get after either from people coming up and relating to you or just like 
something that happens in the brain when you're like turn on that emotionality and and you're vulnerable in front of people that really helps you feel bonded to them and I remember like it felt good it felt good to hear really emotional shares sure and I and I am kind of curious about that just from um you know a scientific standpoint like what is actually happening you know in the brain like it's like bonding people it does I mean it triggers uh, the release of certain chemicals that make you feel protective that make you feel connected, that give you the sense that this is working and that it gives you this kind of validation about this space and that you're not alone. And so I think there's a lot of endorphin. There's a lot of serotonin. There's a lot, there's a lot that gets released and you, you lean in, you know, Mm because you want to be there for them. And, but I think you're right that sometimes it's not the right place and it's not the right time. Right. I want to thank you for your time, your insight, your openness to sharing your experiences that were, it was voluntary sharing and um, that (laughs) you wanted um, to be able to do that, which I I value because it shows why you have mm, a real understanding uh, of this and someone can feel safe talking to you about their experiences. And you're not saying, you know, it was all bad. You're not thinking in black and white ways. You're not thinking the ways that you're concerned about that the group does sometimes you're saying both and you know and that's really important and I think that's very real and professional and everything else and so before we finish up where can people find you I'll post your links as well but if you have a website or any other information so my website is my name uh Brooke Knock b-r-o-o-k-e-k-n-a-c-k-m-s-t.com um and that has my uh, all my info that you can connect with me. My number is posted on the site as well as um, you can email me through the site. Wonderful. Good. Thank you. And thank you for all of your good work with people who are looking for resources. And, and again, you know, if people are interested in doing this work, talk to Brooke, talk to me, you know, because there really is a need. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. One more thing before you go. I thank Brooke so much for talking about her own experiences and also from the perspective of someone who's been through something and has noticed this residual impact that is very bothersome to her that she didn't know was going to happen at the beginning, even though there are positives, even though she got something out of it. Still, It was sort of more than she bargained for. And I'm hoping that as we talk about these kinds of issues on the show, there can be a very kind of adult way of looking at these kinds of groups, kind of a both and situation rather than either or, that it can be positive, it can be life-saving, and for some people, it can be troublesome and it can leave them with an after effect that can be either debilitating or just annoying at the very least, but one that I think really needs to be looked at because I think as with any group, it should be open to making adjustments so that more people have a safe experience there. And when there are so many people who talk about leaving and feeling they can't trust themselves or leaving 
because they were being mistreated by people in the group or by their sponsor, well, then I think it is certainly problematic and would behoove a group like that to really look at how to make some changes so that more people benefit without any harm. I think it's also good to know that there are other ways to work on sobriety and other ways to deal with addiction. AA becomes, I think, the one group that people are referred to. And it isn't the only. There are other ways, there are other paths towards dealing with addiction. I also think moving away from AA and just talking about 12-step It's problematic sometimes when there are organizations and treatment centers that are following a 12-step model where it doesn't really quite fit. I was working with a family that had a teenage son at the time who was dealing with some serious depression and serious anxiety and was sent to a day treatment program for teenagers. Turns out that most of the teenagers there were acting out teenagers and had broken into things and stolen things and were dealing with, you know, drinking too much or taking drugs. Uh, And so this program itself followed a 12-step model. And what I noticed was that this boy, who already felt isolated from the world, already felt different, also felt that way here. It was like trying to fit him into a program that didn't fit what he needed, but they weren't willing to change what they were doing to encompass what he needed. So he would sit in a room with other teenagers and the people in charge would talk about how you need to remain accountable for your behavior. And meanwhile, this boy couldn't get out of bed in the morning. So what behavior? I mean, the parents actually said to me, I wish he would actually act out. I wish he would have a spontaneous moment where we'd have to worry about him every once in a while. He was so shut down. And so here he was being told that he needed to make amends and, you know, for what? For crying throughout the day? So again, it just didn't fit. And I remember talking to the people there and saying, you know, when you tell the parents who are basically sometimes on suicide watch for their son, that when they are outside his bedroom door and they take turns kind of guarding it to make sure he doesn't go and harm himself, if when you call them codependent because you're using the language of 12-step, they're actually just trying to keep their child alive. How is that codependent? They would rather not have to worry about this, of course, They're not trying to be a part of the problem. And in fact, if they weren't doing that, he probably would not be alive to be in your program. So I think a lot of people get diagnosed and misdiagnosed when 12-step is sort of pushed into a program where it doesn't quite belong. And there is not the interest or the skill or whatever it is to adapt to all the people and all the families who are there at a treatment center. I want to also highlight for you that there was an article in Filter magazine. Uh, April Smith put together an article and interviewed me for it. I wanted to mention a couple of things that I mentioned in the article. I was 
talking about what happens within a group that makes it kind of cult-like. And she added these things into the article about 12-step. I wasn't even necessarily talking about 12-step with all of them. It's just that she said it applied. So I want to go to reviewing some of the things that I noticed. And again, this is my way of saying, don't let me decide for you. Definitely see if any of these things are present in the groups that you belong to, in the groups that you follow, and see if you think they're problematic and if this is reason enough to want to find help elsewhere. And so one of the things that I find that makes things difficult specifically about 12-step is that there is this need for sharing. And some people share, some people don't, but I think people get more positive reinforcement for sharing more. And some people are not ready to share. And I think they feel shamed or they're blamed for kind of withholding information and that that's going to get in their way. And I think you need to let people have the time frame that works for them when they feel ready, not when they felt pushed so they would have friends within the group. That's not enough of a reason to choose the timing as being the right timing for you. The other thing is that when a group presents its teachings, its philosophy, its structure as the ultimate way, the only way, and you have to follow every step in order to get the help that you were wanting, then if it's not working, you're made to feel that it's because you're not following the steps in the correct way, as opposed to potentially that it's not actually addressing what your issue is. And maybe you are not an alcoholic and have never needed to diagnose yourself in that way and label yourself in that way, but you were self-medicating because you're a depressive. And I think sometimes what happens is that people then feel that unless it's working for them and helping them with everything, again, they're not trying hard enough. They're not going to enough meetings. It becomes its own distraction. And I think delays people getting help for what is really their problem. The other part is what I was saying about calling yourself an alcoholic or whatever the group is for, or a codependent or whatever it is. I think you don't want to let an organization define you. And you don't want it to tell you who you are and what you are. And that becomes sort of how you see yourself. And that becomes how other people see you. And it could be that it's a false diagnosis. And that becomes, again, another distraction from kind of really looking at yourself and seeing the issues. I think the other part is that there is an irony, I feel. When you're helping people address addiction, when you're helping people address dependency, that you don't also want to have them be connected to a program in a way that breeds its own dependency, where as soon as you leave, you're going to wind up in a gutter and dead, um, and that you need this for the rest of your life. I'm not sure if it's a great idea to kind of mm, have to choose one dependency over another. And that you're never done. And within groups, I think that will say you need this for the rest of your life. It could be that you don't, but you never get to find that out. And I think that there's something really wonderfully validating and strengthening and confidence building when you get to find out that you don't need 
someone's help and you don't need something's help anymore and you can kind of do this on your own. I think also there is this idea that when you are in a program like this, that somehow these are the only people who really understand you. You know, there are these quotes that people will quote to me from 12 Step, you know, this idea we kind of speak the same language, we have the same quotes. Um, and I think that ends up kind of making you very, very close to the people in the group, but not so close anymore to the people outside. And then for a lot of people, when they have potentially a bad experience there, they really feel stuck because they don't know if they have a family and friendships to go back to because weren't these their new and only and better family and friends? So I think that it's important when anyone diagnoses you and says, you are this, or you have to say about yourself, I am this, like the parents in that scenario with their teenager, they had to say, we are codependent. They were not. They were parents and they were keeping their son alive as much as they could. And so they then had to go to counseling because of their codependency. And that was a whole bunch of other months and money to deal with that, only to come to find out that that wasn't actually the case. And the psychiatrist who was brought in to help the son said, thank God you did that, uh, as opposed to what's wrong with you as parents. And so I want you to be able to make a decision for yourself, as this is the whole reason for this show. I want you to be able to look at things and see, is this helping me or is this hurting me? Do I need to actually call myself something in order to get help or in order to be liked here? Does that set up a situation where my connection to these people is absolutely conditional, where if I stop going to meetings, then they'll look down on me, where they're not going to kind of allow me to move away from the group, where I don't really get to be me. I want you to always feel that you have a choice. You get to be you and you get to decide and you get to kind of pick and choose and you can pick the steps that work for you and leave the rest. And for other people where they need the absolute structure and they need to follow all the steps and it's the only thing that's going to work, great. Go for it. Do it. Keep doing it if it's keeping you on a good track. But for other people, I want you to be able to exercise your freedom to make that decision on your own. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening. Tired of ads? Well, listen or download this show for free on NPR's Radio Public app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. We have over 100 interviews that you can access with any donation. Subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. And we love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.